0: Welcome to Monk's Take. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode three of the second season of Monk's Take. We have Rupert Lewis, our field hockey coach, here with us today in our origin series, our third episode of the origin series. Uh, Coach Lewis, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure as always. Well, this is going to be good. This is going to be an interesting one because, uh, you know, being from Jamaica, how you came to America and ended up at, at University of Southern Maine where you had a Hall of Fame soccer career and then on to St. Joe's and, and you know, as a as a very, very successful field hockey coach. Uh, so with the Origin Series, uh, you know, we're just going to have you tell us from the beginning what, you know, what life was like for you as as a, a young man and, and how you came to to play soccer and field hockey, and what life was like in 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 Jamaica, and so just kind of start from the beginning.
1: Wow, I I think for me the opportunity came when I moved from out of the city of Montego Bay to Bogue Heights Boulevard, which is a small residential area, and um, we created this little niche of friends. Uh, we used to play soccer in the backyards of everyone's house. And when the the lawns weren't available, I had a friend of mine, Hugh Shem, that his parents had a tiled garage port. So, And we would wet that down with water and soap sud and uh, play soccer barefooted with a little plastic ball. That actually honed and developed our skills as young teenage boys playing the sport. Um, I was fortunate to go to high school where I won my first championship um, at Cornwall College. And forgive me, it is in high school because the name Corner College sounded like you're at college here. But it's a prominent all-boys high school in Montego Bay. Uh, at the tender age of 12 plus, I won the first U-13 championship there. From there, um, the, the natural order of things is to play U-15 and then varsity. Um, The coach that was coaching the U15 team did not allow me to play because I went with my family on uh, a summer trip and he had started coaching the team during the summer, preparing them for the, the fall season. So I was not allowed to play U15. I ended up playing the second team of the varsity and did so well during that second team that they moved me up to varsity. So I skipped U15 and ended up playing the the varsity which is the you know under 19 high school team. We we had a very successful run and then after high school I decided I wanted to pursue a higher education and ended up putting on a wait list for a scholarship for Howard. From being selected uh, for the Jamaica Under 21 team, um, we had five players that were selected to go to Howard University. We had three and I was in the second phase with the other two guys that were slated to go up. However, that scholarship fell through because they ran out of money and uh, it didn't happen. And I was able to reach out to my childhood friends that ended up having a scholarship at Southern Maine. Um, Harold Chappie, manager, was the coach there, one of the greatest recruiters that I've ever seen because he could convince anyone <laughs> to attend. Um, Southern Maine. And he put together quite an eclectic group of players from England, uh, Africa, national African player, uh, Italian player. And one of my best teammates at the time was uh, Don Francisi and Joe Atterbury out of New York. We spent the uh, four years together as players and had quite a terrific uh, career playing soccer
0: at Southern Maine. And you had some great success there, obviously at a hall of fame career, but uh, six, eight years ago you were inducted into the hall of fame at USM. Uh, just talk about your playing time at USM and, and uh, you know, the success the team had while you were there. Uh,
1: USM was very interesting. Um, We had a great time. We had a group of guys who loved the sport of soccer. So during our lunch breaks, we would all find a room or a space, take our regular school's clothes off and put on the the gear, and we would be playing. No one prompted this. This just happened naturally. And because of that chemistry, we had a lot of success. We we were fortunate as freshmen to go to the national tournament and finish fourth, I think, in the national tournament. Um, this was the first time that I saw snow. I can never (laughs) forget it. It it was Springfield, Illinois, playing in these wide open fields and all of a sudden snowstorm. Um, it was a wake up for me. Um, but we had fun. I, I don't regret a day of not spending time with those guys because we bonded, you know. And with four years of playing with the same group of guys, you know, we had some very interesting trips along the way. Um, one, one that comes to mind is my sophomore year going to a Florida trip where we drove two vans 25 hours straight, <laughs> so we swapped drivers and went to uh, a spring break in Florida to play soccer and to get some sun. <laughs> it, it was uh, quite adventurous.
0: So, so ending up in Maine, I mean, growing up in Jamaica, a tropical country, you know, what, what was the coldest temperature probably that you, that you experienced before you came to
1: Maine. Well, for me, our winters were low 70s, and that was freezing. We were all in sweaters and hats during that time.
0: So so coming to Maine, you it was pretty warm when you first got here for preseason and things like that. But come October, right, in the middle of your season, it's getting pretty cold. I mean, what that you know, you mentioned seeing snow in Springfield, Illinois in the tournament, but You know, you were getting accustomed to the cold or or a shock to the system, at least, earlier. Well, to be honest,
1: um, I've been here quite a while, since 1979, (laughs) and I still don't like the cold. Um, You know, I'll tell you a favorite story, and this was a wake-up call for me. Coming here, you're not used to the cold, First day off the plane, and this was probably mid-70s temperature, and I'm not used to, this is like winter for us. I came off the plane back then at the Portland Jetport. They didn't have planes that came up to the, the actual doors. You had to come off, walk down the stairs, and go, go in to get your luggage. And I came off, on that first fresh breath of air, so cold that i i started to consider what the hell did i do <laughs> you know um and we got through that ended up joining the team for preseason and during preseason i had an opportunity to do some manual labor so i ended up working for this ex-football player, and picked us up, took us to Farmington. And I never forgot this. We started the day like 6 a.m., and Farmington is about a good 5, 10 degrees difference than Gorham, Southern Maine. And when I went there, this guy was taking two small Christmas-looking trees and planting them he's lifting two trees at a time we're struggling with one but it was so cold up in Farmington that I couldn't feel my fingers after the day's work he said are you ready for tomorrow I sure shook my head and said yes but we never showed up
0: (laughs) and it probably wasn't even that cold it was just cold for you because you weren't used to it
1: you're so true,, uh, just not used to the cold. and uh, you know, as the years went on, you learned how to dress warm and and deal with the, the cold temperatures.
0: So that that kind of you know your, your soccer career ends now. Now talk about field hockey and, and how that started. I know that's a that's a sport in your home country you know, men playing field hockey, not so much here, but, you know, you end up coaching uh, at the college level. Let's kind of talk about how you got your start in coaching in America at the field hockey, uh, you know, in the field hockey realm.
1: That is a very interesting journey for me. Um, I ended up in my senior year at Cornway College, we had a boys field hockey team, and that senior year after soccer, because field like hockey is played in the spring. Soccer is played in the fall. So for me, I was a three sport athlete. I played soccer in the fall, and then I swam in the winter. And then in the spring, just to keep myself active, I did field hockey. Um, so that senior year at Cornell, we needed. A coach and we needed to reignite the, the field hockey like passion amongst the young men that were attending school. I ended up playing and coaching, not having no experience of, of coaching, but had a strong passion for the game and so forth. With the experience that I had, I ended up with uh, two of my players getting called up for the, the national Field hockey ended in Jamaica, came to the U.S., played soccer for four years. And then at the end of four years, because I was on a tuition waiver, I needed to give back to the school. So I looked at the opportunity of coaching soccer or coaching field hockey, which back then nobody had seen guys playing field hockey with a stick, you know. And uh, I ended up being the assistant coach under Paula Hodgkin for 10 plus years. So after school, I worked at Unum. I would leave Unum, drive 15, 20 minutes to Gorham, do a training session with, with the girls, and then to games. Um, At that time, I was still a young man. (laughs) So one of the greatest things that I could do is get the team fit. Because when I got involved, the, the USM program was not successful. We hadn't won many games in a long time. So I looked at the stats, how many games we allowed, and how many games we were scoring. And I figured the best way to be a strong contributor to the program was to take on the defense. So I ended up taking on the defensive unit and turned the program around relatively quickly. Um, some of the great highlights is being able to beat Bowden. Uh, Bowden was a powerhouse back then, as which still is, uh, and introducing a reverse left hand hit which nobody had seen here and you know just some tactical stuff that I took from my soccer experience and put it with field hockey and I I had a good run Um, during my time we had probably I would say six or eight all-americans over the, the 10 years of coaching
0: So how did it come about, a step back just a little bit, Um, how did it come about that you uh, joined the coaching staff at the college level? Um, Was it right out of college? Who gave you your first job? You know, that kind of thing.
1: Well, my first job came right out of college. Um, Again, I was fortunate to get the assistant coaching position with Paula Hodgkin, tremendous, really great coach coach. she did quite a lot for that program and you know, good mentor. Uh, it I learned from the coaching realm, the stuff that you needed to do behind the scenes. And, you know, at the same time I was young, so I was very energetic and I really left everything on the field there, you know. I ran with the girls <laughs> during practice. I uh, Focused on getting them ready for every competition that we had, and once we turned it around where we started having success, we became quite a threat, you know, to the little east, and you know ended up going to the national tournament. Uh, I think one year our best finish was fourth in in the national tournament.
0: Well, that's incredible, and and you were at USM for how long? Ten years, <laughs> ten years coaching there. So, so that leaves a spell in between USM assistant coaching days and when you ended up at St. Joe's, which was two thousand uh, four, two thousand three. Um, two thousand four, two thousand five.
1: Um, so after ten years of coaching. Um, I was fortunate to have my first child. So I ended up leaving because of being a young parent. So I uh, spent time with the family. I got involved with coaching club soccer and then doing one, two years of assisting um, the men's soccer program there. and. I did it because over the years, that program was riding high, and then things fell, and we really needed to reignite the program. So, you know, I was still young, still playing um, club and summer league, so I had a little bit more to give back to those guys, and I ended up uh, assisting Eric Miller and I was there for two years with him. Uh, the year he got coach of the year, I was the assistant coach with him. And, you know, we ended up going to the, the national tournament that year.
0: So so how did it come about uh, that you ended up at St. Joe's? So the, while you were coaching at USM, <clears throat> I think towards the tail end, probably St. Joe's just started their program. And... In the in the ten years between when they started and when you came on board, you know there were a handful of coaches, not a tremendous amount of success. Uh, success. It's not uncommon for a brand new program at the, you know, college level. Um, talk about how you ended up here, and and uh, you know what what some things you did right away to help change the culture of the program. Well,
1: me ending up at St. Joe's, I think that was destiny, and. I got a call from my mom that said, you know, you need to come home. I don't think your dad has a lot of time left. And I had to make that very difficult decision of leaving a job, which I just started, and then going, going home. So I left, went to Jamaica, spent most of the summer there helping out at home, and kind of helping my dad get back on track. And uh, when I decided to come back to the U.S., I had to find a job. And I checked our Portland Press paper and saw that they had an interim coaching position. So at the time, our AD was David Russo, and I came up to have a conversation with him just to find out what the job entailed and whether or not you know, this would be a good fit. Well, I was so blown away by how friendly and open everybody was here on campus. I never forget this. What I thought would have been 15, 20 minutes meeting ended up to be about a couple hours, and. On our walk from the eighties office over to the CAF, I met Sister Mary George O'Toole and I can never forget this. This has stayed with me all my life. Um, I just felt this was where I should have been. And um, it was just such a great experience that when I took the job I had no idea what I was getting into on how I would turn a program around. Well, it taught me a very important lesson, how to be humble and have humility in losing a lot of games. I lost majority of the games that we played that year. The one thing that kept me engaged and focused is that despite losing None of these girls would ever be down. We still came out the next day, trained hard, and kept fighting. Fortunately, the last game of the year, we ended up winning. So when we had our banquet with the president (laughs) and I was asked to speak, I said, well, the one thing I can tell you positively is that we are undefeated and we will... (laughs) stay undefeated. So I knew I had my work cut out for me. And I started recruiting. Uh, And I reached out to every possible student athlete that I could. One of my big recruits was Julia Ostrowski. And we ended up building a team around some good athletes. And Not like the teams that I have today where we're really balanced, but you had strengths in different areas. And, you know, within three years, we turned the program around from uh, a losing program under 500 to above 500 records.
0: So you were a head coach for the first time since you were a coach player your senior year in high school. And this was at the college level um, at, a, at a totally new uh, institution for you. And, and uh, talk about some of the hurdles and challenges of, of that, of being a first-time college head coach in a sport where, you know, you had to gain some credibility, I guess. Because, you know, a, a, a man as a field hockey coach is, is kind of rare. You don't, you don't see too many male field hockey coaches at the college level. You hit the nail
1: on its head right there. Um, First, we had to build a credible program that people would respect based on the opportunities that we were given. Uh, I knew recruiting was gonna be one of the hurdles. I knew finding the right team chemistry and just having players trust in your system. And, you know, it took some years for me to go through some learning curves on how to coach girls versus coaching guys. And uh, over the years, I was a very strict, disciplined coach that focused on getting my team in shape and doing the things that I knew were right. But I learned quickly that you had to soften and really listen to your players. And uh, I ended up turning the program around just from pure pursuit of excellence. uh, These young ladies started believing in what we were doing. And once that belief was there, all of a sudden success just kept following us. it wasn't long after that you know we were then known as one of the really strong defensive teams, and you know we were able to win some really
0: tough games that no one expected us to win now that, that's a, that's an interesting aside i think is that as a soccer player, you were a forward right you were a you were a goal scorer and you know you came to be kind of the defensive coach at u s m For their field hockey program just kind of by default and that's been a big part of your coaching philosophy every year you rank your team ranks highly in the the country as far as schools against average and and things like that and shutouts so just talk about kind of that transformation of, of, of a mindset
1: well I I'm a strong believer that if you play good defense and team defense you can beat anyone that you face as a as an opponent. Uh, as As a kid coming up through the ranks, I played with a lot of older guys, and if you could not win the ball or keep the ball, you could not get the opportunity to play. So, at an early age, I learned that your best asset is winning, winning the ball. How to win that ball when we lose it. And how to keep it when we have it. And very quickly, you know, my soccer coaching philosophy of first, second, and third defenders came into play. And it has instilled some really strong defensive principles to this day that we live by as a team. And a lot of these teams are always trying to figure out, what am I doing so special? Well, it's the small things that you do, and you do them well, that allows you to win the big games. And once your, your team believes in those principles and the philosophy, it's an easy sell. And then it becomes a natural progression. When we win it, we know what we need to do to take care of the ball and how to
0: create a a quick transition. So recruiting is obviously the lifeblood of your team. And, you know, you, you talked about recruiting when you first came on as the head coach here. Talk about your development as a recruiter.
1: I think some of the recruiting skills we've got this year is some of the best, second to none. Um, the Dan Tudor stuff has paid huge dividends for us as a program. I, I consider myself a good recruiter. I will never say I'm a great recruiter because there's always room for improvement. But one thing that I've learned is that you need to be yourself and let your record and your philosophy speak for itself. Uh, Kids will see through the crap. And I think it's important that when you're sharing your philosophy, you're being very transparent and coming from the heart, because I think that's a very strong part of recruiting. Uh, I've lost some really good players to other schools. But as I always say, when you're here as a student athlete, you're here for school first. Think about the school because you have to do that, whether you consider that broken leg test. If I get injured and I can't play, am I going to be happy at this institution I'm at? And that's one of the, the standard questions I Ask, and I have those kids answer any recruit that's coming through the ranks in the St. Joe's program. We're here for school first. Feel like he's a bonus, and you'll have a successful feel like career because you're getting quality coaching, and you're going to have a second-to-none opportunity to move and be the best you can be.
0: Uh, that's a great point because you never know what's going to happen uh with your with your health and and things like that uh so do you remember your first recruiting call oh
1: i i I'll honestly say I don't think I can remember the first recruiting call but I remember my first home visit I was so nervous <laughs> that day that I didn't know how to approach the family that I was meeting. And my first home visit was one of our former captains, Carrie Buttons. when I went to her house. Um, It's a trip in Massachusetts, and this was my first home visit, and I'm like, you know, I don't know what I'm gonna say and how I'm gonna break the ice and so forth. And they made me feel so welcome that, Everything started flowing naturally, and I, I became myself. And I think it's because of just being myself and seeing the type of person I am and the passion that I had, I was able to get Carrie as one of my
0: recruits that year. That's great. That's a question I like to ask because. Uh, you know, as a former baseball assistant, I remember mine and, you know, it it can be pretty awkward if you don't, don't have a script or you don't know exactly what you're going to say, depending on how they answer. But the home visit one is, yeah, yeah. You're, you're (laughs) in their realm. If it doesn't go the way you want, then what do you do? Yeah.
1: I, again, as I said, it, it was very nerve wracking. I remember driving up, taking some time to find a house in that neighborhood and, you know, not knowing what I was going to say and how am I going to sell this program and we didn't have a lot of wins and so forth. But uh, I think it was such a welcoming environment that I, I just easily became myself and let the conversation flow.
0: Perfect. Now you, you, you brushed upon quickly about how much success th- that your program has had and it's been... Uh, remarkable for sure considering where you started and, and and you know that's how it is you know when you have to change culture and it, it takes some time uh, you've had some great players but this four year consecutive championship run uh, has been uh, pretty remarkable talk about you know winning that first one finally getting to montclair state yeah. having that huge win and national yeah. tournament upset and uh, you know just kind of just becoming the the staple in the conference was some pretty good competition.
1: Well, I I'll, I'll share with you something that I don't say too often. I've been to many championships and I've seen that top prize slip away for various reasons. And I think those lessons have stayed with me even Winning my first championship, it was pretty exciting, but I also knew what it felt like on the other side. And you know, one of the things that I do after every championship game, I will go over to the coach and congratulate them. Uh, humility goes a long way, and I think it took me some years finding. My niche and finding the right players that believed in a, a system that we played in, with that afforded us that a success, um, you know. And to be honest, coaching is giving these kids some direction and guidance in getting there, but they have to do it. And without their Tenacity and belief—you know—we wouldn't have the success we've had to date. Uh, I've had some really great players, and I say great players. I've had some some kids come through the St. Joe's ranks that could have been playing Division One level field hockey, and without a doubt, if they had chosen to go there, they would have been successful. But I am so privileged to know that we have a strong group of ladies that are constantly part of this family for life that uh, have laid it on the line and done some great things to get this program to where it's at. Um, we are a dominant team right now. And like any strong team, others will be coming for you. So, you know, I'm going to enjoy the success while it lasts. But at the same time, I know success does not come easy when you're a champion. You have to fight to remain on
0: top. One of the hardest things to do is repeat, right? So that's, that's definitely true. Now I, I, I want to wrap up this conversation. It's been it's been great talking to you about some of this stuff. I always learn things about our coaches I never knew when we do these origin series podcasts. Uh, now Rupert, you're a you're a uh, a multi layered individual. Okay, you you uh, you know you're the coach. You're uh, you know uh, director of our, our budget here in our department as your secondary role, but also um, you're quite the cook okay and uh you are a very successful dj and i don't know that everybody knows that about you probably a lot do uh but you know you're good at so many things it's it's uh it's pretty cool to to hear some stories about you know how you got started in these other areas oh wow. well i think a lot of that came from an
1: early childhood passion uh I'm going to share something that I've not shared with anyone. <laughs> so in, in high school, I was a little bit of a rebellious young man. <laughs> and uh, I decided that I was going to be a vegetarian. And my mom said, I am not making two meals for you you either eat what's in the house or you make your own. So that's how I ended up starting to experiment with my cooking. Um, I was a vegetarian for a good part of my teenage years. So from the age of 13 through 19 when I came here as a strict vegetarian. Um, the only thing I had that spilled blood was fish and I had to learn how to make these meals. When I came to the U.S., I could not continue sustaining that vegetarian lifestyle because the food that I was getting was not fresh and organic like I used to in the homeland. So I ended up getting sick and it forced me to make a decision and finding protein another way. So I ended up eating chicken and then from chicken led to red meat, which I have now cut out of my diet again because I think that that's something that it's a choice everyone has to make. But I think you can sustain a strong, healthy lifestyle with vegetables. Okay. So, in high school, we used to have a fund of playing records. So, I became a strong record collector. And we had little 45s, and I uh, had a little turntable and a speaker. And I would get all the top songs that were available in these 45s and we would do house parties. So I started DJing (laughs) as a high school kid doing these little house parties. And back then, it's not like today where you have the internet, everybody can get access to these. You had to really search for these records. I still have thousands of records in Jamaica that I have not given up because those records probably now I would say, are very valuable because they can't be found anymore. Um, So I started DJing by default because of the love of music and collecting those records and then playing these little house parties. When I came to the U.S., I still continued my passion of collecting records and then did a couple fraternity parties back at USM. And back then, you know, fraternity parties were not focused on the music. They were focused on other things. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, I continue that passion and drive and one of the things that I will be known for is the quality of my music and the quality of my production. I think it's so important whatever you're doing you do it to be the best and because of that I still have quite a collection of one reggae music and two the urban club music that all the young kids listen to. So a lot of times I can relate to all of my players what they're listening to because I'm actually playing it myself. <laughs> I just don't do it every day in the office. or so. Um, so from those two passions, it helped me develop a unique style of cooking and making uh, seasoning. Um, I will say everyone that has tried my jerk seasoning has raved about it, and I have a lot of pride in making that from scratch versus buying it out of a jar or bottle from someone else. And at some point when I'm done coaching, I think that will be my next journey. I'm actually gonna produce uh a jerk seasoning under my name.
0: Well folks, you heard it you heard it here first. The breaking news. That's that's uh that's very cool. And yes, we, we have had your your jerk chicken and it's it's uh, unbelievable. So um well, Coach, I know we, we've been chatting for a while here and, and uh, I think we've covered just about everything. Is there anything else that you want to uh, throw in there that we haven't heard?
1: Well, I think my journey still continues. You mentioned about having four in a row. I think that journey is not over and uh, I'm looking forward to the day when we're not in a mask and being able to get back on the field and really have another opportunity of growing this program to another level. Um, it's interesting when you get older, sometimes some of the young folks will say you're getting softer, but. It's just that you're getting wiser. And now that I'm a little bit older, I'm learning some things that allows me to have success with not as much effort as I had to do before.
0: Well, that makes sense. Definitely. Well, Coach Lewis, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a pleasure. And, uh, you know, it's, it's always interesting to hear the, the origin stories of our coaches, but yours in particular is unique. So very cool, and, and thanks again. Well, folks, that has been Monk's Take Season 2, Episode 3. Thanks for listening. We will be back after the holidays with our next coach, and that person is to be determined. So thanks for listening. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Signing off for Monk's Take, this is Corey McCarthy.